filler in business books and audiobooks takes up time that you don't have. You're here because you want the golden nuggets from each book without all the BS. The more you learn, the more power you have to affect the world around you. This is the Cut the Crap Podcast. Never read a book again. And here's your host, Ryan Calagiri. What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Cut the Crap Podcast. Really excited to uh, bring you our featured guest today, Joel Semeniak. Joel, how's it going, man? I'm doing really well. How are you? Always good, my friend. Always good. I was actually lucky enough to uh, catch Joel this week uh, doing a um, uh, a keynote presentation at a technology conference. It was on uh, was it the the future of software development? Yeah, what I what I did is kind of paint a landscape of what the next ten years of software development looks like, kind of based on some of the current trends that are very apparent in the industry today. So I've actually had the pleasure of working with Joel many years ago, and uh, you know, not not to puff your head up here, man, but a very intelligent guy. He's got a lot of experience. So you know what, I could sit here and talk about you, but uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and some of the experiences you bring to the table? Sure, uh, I'm the co-founder um, and chief innovation officer of a company called Imaginet. Um, it really is kind of a technology slash innovation platform company. So we help others innovate. Uh, and as a result of that, we've also been involved with a number of different startups and companies all over the world. Um, so we work with big companies, you know, as big as um, for you know, companies like Toyota, as an example, doing some really cool innovation work with them, all the way down to, to small startups. And we've also had a number of uh, spin-off organizations from Imagine It as well, kind of based on some of those innovations. Um, so my goal as the chief innovation officer is to con- create the ecosystem and the patterns that enable this innovation, both in a, with our big customers as well as some of our small startups as well. It's fitting that we're talking today about the Startup Owner's Manual, the step-by-step guide for building a great company by Steve Blank and Bob Dorf. And so when I asked you, I said, you know, Joel, what kind of book has had a big impact on you? What book, um, you know, out of all the ones that you've read, and I know you're an avid reader, which one stands out? And you told me this one. So tell everyone why this book in particular. Well, it's kind of one of those you know, hard lessons you learn in life over the years. You know, I've, I haven't had all, you know, all successes in my career. I've had a number of pretty interesting failures. And you look back on those failures and like, well, you know, why didn't that go so well? Or why, you know, what could we have done to, to, you know, do it differently to, to have seen better success. And you start kind of making this theory about, yeah, we could have run a few more experiments. We could have done this. We were a little pompous and thinking that we knew what the answer was before we started building it. And then, you know, I started explaining this to a friend of mine, a close friend, uh, uh, Stephen Forte, who runs um, a VC down in Silicon Valley now. And he's like, well, you know what? You should really read this book called The Four Steps to the Epiphany. And I know it's not the title of this book, but it was the precursor to this book that I was talking about. And uh, The Four Steps to the Epiphany was um, basically the, the, the first entry point into this new concept called uh, customer development versus product development. And, and it was kind of like this aha moment. I was like, of course, this is all real. This is true. I've lived this. These, these are the same things that have been percolating in me for the last little bit. And here's a book that tells you all about it. Now, the interesting part about it is that uh, Four Steps to the Epiphany was written a long time ago by Steve Blankwell. And he revisited um, that book in this book, uh, The Startup Owner's Manual, but really better condenses, better summarizes, and has taken even more uh, lessons learned from 
his journey um, into innovation production um, and captured it in this in, in this fantastic book. Tell us a little bit about some of the takeaways that you took away from the startup owner's manual and how you applied them. You bet. The first one is um, no pressure, no diamonds. Mm, nice. <laughs> so what 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 does a startup not have? Uh, money. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that's a pretty common problem even outside of startups. So that that constraint, that time constraint, that budget constraint, we're not able to throw millions of dollars at some new idea, you know, go away for a year and then go, ta-da, here's a new product. And, and if I build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. That doesn't exist any longer. That might have started off in the whole dot-com world. But today, no pressure, no diamonds, that we need to have very, very tight constraints. And these constraints force us to think about how we run our businesses a little bit differently, and more importantly, how we're actually providing value to our customers. So that one basic principle says, okay, you don't have much as a startup. What's the minimal amount of work that you can do to even prove or even understand the value that you're trying to provide to your customers? That one principle is the foundation of of the book, uh, as a matter of fact. So instead of taking big risks, you're taking very, very small risks and learning as much as humanly possible about the value that you're producing your customer from the vocabulary that you're using with your customers all the way down to product features or, or your services uh, that you're offering to them. But you're taking very, very small experiments. And the key word there is experiments. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you don't have a lot of money. So why would I want to bet the farm? We're going to make little bets and we're going to learn from them so that we're getting closer and closer and closer to the target. Uh, That is the number one and likely the biggest takeaway from the book that is is the predominant theme that underscores the entire customer. It's called the customer development model, um, which is completely different than product development. What you're really doing is you're building customers as a startup, aren't you? You're not building a product, you're building customers. And to do that, you're providing the most value. So, you know, with the concept of tight constraints, you actually have the ability to out-innovate people because you're laser-focused. And that's what we're seeing is in terms of the big gap between some of the larger enterprises these days, not even being able to keep up with innovation. They've got big, bigger budgets, mm-hmm. but yet they're nowhere close to the innovation that's provided uh, out of the box with some of these early startups who have nothing. They're eating ramen noodles for a couple of right. you know, months and years, right? <laughs> but they're out innovating everybody. And innovation really is about providing value. So here's something I want to talk about, constraints. A lot of companies, a lot of people, individuals, they look at constraints as just roadblocks and they can't get through them. So what do you say to the person out there that looks at constraints and says, listen, like we can't do it because we don't have money. We can't do this because we don't have the resources. It's just not possible. I'm sure you talk to a lot of people who look at the constraints and they look at them as just death sentences. We can't do anything about it. What do you suggest to somebody who has those kind of constraints? What do you do? Well, I actually think that they have to look at it completely opposite. They have to see the constraint as being something awesome. Because when you have a constraint, you're actually weeding out bad decisions. You know, and here's, here's just an example of just software development in general. If I only have a very small budget or a fixed budget to produce a piece of software, aren't I going to focus on the most important features of that software first and get those done in that small budget? Well, that just makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So the smaller the budget, the more attuned you are to value and what exactly we're going to invest in. Now, that doesn't mean you become paralyzed with, you know, 
planning. Let's plan for a year to figure out what that value is. But it really does say, you know what? You've got a very small constraint. Let's figure out what the highest value is that we can produce in that constraint and then work from there. That's the, the diamond part, right? If you don't have pressure, you don't have diamonds and you can't get to those diamonds without that constraint. Unlimited budgets, unlimited people is actually the, um, the, uh, the bad aspect of innovation. That's when things don't get done. Uh, and we've seen this time and time again in large enterprises where, you know, you're throwing millions of dollars at projects, but you know, nothing is really getting done. It's when you have the tight constraints, the tight timelines, a small number of people doing amazing things together that you will actually get those beautiful inventions and innovations that turn out to provide the most value to the customers because that's what we're searching for is that value. That's exactly right. You know, pressure with pressure comes diamonds and with friction comes fire. I mean, it's the exact same thing. And a lot of people, when they look at constraints, it's these just big death sentences. And it's tough to really get that mindset to say, listen, these are good things. Like you said it yourself. You're like, these are exciting things. I love constraints because that gives me focus. It forces us to really focus on what's going to provide value, what we actually need to do. And let's face it. Anybody who's creating something new these days, they're going to have constraints. Nobody has a blank check. Well, maybe some people have blank checks, but like you said, that's not a positive thing. It's actually a negative thing because it forces you. It doesn't force you to focus. So I love that point, Joel. And I think that's one that a lot of people can take away from this book. So what other types of um, uh, insights or experiences have you been able to apply different lessons from the Startup Owner's Manual uh, into some of the things that you're doing right now? Because I think people are pretty interested in kind of the work that you do. So do you have any specific anecdotes or stories that you might be able to take from the book that you applied into uh, some of your clients' work? Absolutely. I got a great story for you. It involves beer. And so it has to be good. Yeah. (laughs) So... Um, I really started to um, embrace uh, the customer development method when I was uh, working as um, um, a senior VP for Telerik as their uh, VP of innovation. Um, So this was a a partnership that we had with Telerik, and I was working with them for a number of years during that partnership. And one of the things that we decided to do was we wanted to help um, a lot of the teams experience these types of things instead of, you know, saying, Hey, you've got six people on your team, six months, go and create a new product of X, right? Let's think about things differently. So what we did is we flew them out to Hong Kong. We did, um, Telerik was involved with a, um, an incubator in Hong Kong. And we actually went through a process called startup weekend. Mm. Now startup weekend is a pretty big thing around the world. And it's actually based on the lean uh, startup method, which is, by the way, the lean startup was based on customer development practices and, uh, and the four steps to the epiphany book. So all of that, all that stuff we see from the lean, anything, right? Lean analytics, lean startups, lean for enterprises that actually all has its roots in the customer development process. So we flew them all out to um, Hong Kong and we participated in startup weekend. So we formed a little team and, and if you've ever participated in the startup weekend before, you start off by making a pitch and you only have like 30 seconds to pitch an idea and then people vote on your ideas and a small number of, you know, quote unquote startups are elected from the, from the community to go through the weekend. So my pitch was I wanted to create a beer app. You know, there's these wine apps, there's these other type of apps. I want to create uh, a beer app. And I think I called it Beerapalooza or something like that. <laughs> nice. um, and uh, the concept was, is that you would rate your beer that you're talking you know, that you would you'd be drinking. And so I, I made the pitch 
And, you know, I was one of the ones that were luckily enough voted in for the week. So I get to choose my teammates. And I chose a lot of the, almost all of the, the uh, people that we brought over from Telerik, as well as a number of people who lived in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And during that weekend, our job was to go out and validate our idea mm-hmm. to the concept of a minimal viable product, mm-hmm. right? So, huh, how would we approach this? What is a minimal viable product? So we, we took a lot of the concepts, in fact, all of the concepts from the customer development mo- method and put them into use. We created a business model canvas, we a user value canvas, and we actually boiled it down to two hypotheses that would prevent us from actually making this real. Hypothesis one, would, pers- would anyone just rank their beer? Maybe, maybe it's just wine snobs who like to do this. Maybe it's scotch snobs who like to do it. And by the way, I'm a scotch snob, so I can nice. say that. Uh, maybe it's not, maybe it's not beer snobs, right? So that was hypothesis number one that we wanted to test. Mm -hmm. Hypothesis number two is if it was to go viral, we needed people to post it on social media. And if people wanted to see that ranking, they would be forced to download the app, right? So that we can create a viral nature of the application. Those were the two hypotheses that created the experiments that led to the design of the minimal viable product. So instead of going and creating um, this huge you know, investment, we actually created two experiments. One experiment was based on SurveyMonkey. We created a mock-up of, a, of a, a, a rating app, if you will, in SurveyMonkey. Um, we used a mobile phone, and it would just say, hey, you know, how did you like the beer that you're using? You get to rate it between one to five, and hey, write down the name of your beer and, and submit it. That was to test whether people would take time and rate their beer. And then the second experiment was, hey, take your phone, uh, Mr. Beer Drinker, take a picture of your beer and post it on your Facebook page. If they were unwilling to do that, then that would also prove one part of the experiment. So how much did we invest into this? Like nothing, really. Zero time. It took us a few hours to create all this. So our next job is divide and conquer. Now, luckily, and maybe not so happenstance, there was a beer festival going on in Hong Kong at the time. Mm-hmm. My job was to take one part of the team to the, to the beer festival, and then another part of the team was to go out and scour all the pubs in Hong Kong. If you've ever been to Hong Kong, it has a rich, vibrant pub scene. It's, mm. it's awesome. Um, and so that's what we did. So we'd walk up to people saying, hey, we're, you know, we're forming in this startup about beer rating, and, and we would say, Take, you know, take out your phone, take a picture of your beer and post it on social media. And we would record the demographics of the people who were, in fact, you know, participating in this. And we tried to be very, very wide. We hit a couple hundred people that night. And we also asked them to rate their beer with our little app. And it was actually recording the data in our survey so we could actually get live survey data on the back end. And then we did the same thing for the people who were out on the field. And it turns out we learned a whole lot. Number one, people who were in pubs did not want to rate their beer. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, they just didn't. They just like go away, right? They were not interested in, in, you know, tweeting about their their beers or anything like that. They just didn't want to participate because Mm -hmm. they were going to pubs to socialize, not to drink beer. Mm -hmm. We also found that the people who were in beer festivals were overwhelmingly excited to rate their beer (laughs) and to to, and to tweet it on social media, but only in a certain demographic, only between eighteen and thirty five year old males. Yeah, females weren't really interested in doing this. Go figure. <laughs> but it turns out that one of the things that we learned during the beer festival is that the beer organizer and the beer vendors were very interested in the data that we had been given or who was able to capture during that beer festival. So that led to our first pivot. 
instead of becoming a you know, global beer um, rating app, we became a beer festival app that could be used to help advertisers and vendors learn about how people are consuming their beer, what they think of the beer, you know, rate, rating their beer, and it became a white label product that could be done under the guise of a beer festival versus its own product uh, in, in, a, in an app store. That's exactly the customer development method, right? That little pivot, that learning that we did by running those experiments helped us fine-tune what the value is. Now, we could have gone away for three months and built a beer rating app. Mm-hmm. Glad, we, glad we didn't because we would have missed the boat completely. Oh, yeah. That's an incredible story. And you know what's funny? I've been told this story. You told me this story before. It's, I'm so happy that you shared this one with everybody because it's so incredibly valuable because time and time again, you see it, I see it. People that just put months and months and years and sometimes millions of dollars worth of investment. We know some of those people who've done that and fallen flat on their face and completely screwed their companies over because they just didn't approach it in such a fashion. So you know what? They, they really missed the boat. And they essentially shoot themselves in the foot. And it's so yep. unfortunate because a lot of these, these, these CEOs who are making these decisions, they have people that work for them that eventually end up having to lose their jobs because they mismanaged the company because they put too much upfront investment. They didn't pivot. They didn't do exactly as you're saying. So what kind of takeaways can you share with somebody who's in the process right now of developing their own product, developing a service and offering? What kind of advice can you give to them based on your experiences with this story? Step number one, stop thinking that you're developing a product. You're not. You're, think, you're developing value to a customer. That is step number one. That's why we think we like to use the term customer development versus product development. Mm-hmm. You can create the best whiz-bang product in the world and have zero customers. That doesn't get you very far. Um, number two, experimentation is your friend. It turns out that there is science in this. A science is formulated hypotheses. Test and validate the hypotheses. Don't guess. Measure instead of guess. That is absolutely critical. Once we started getting into the mindset of measuring versus guessing, it actually sets up patterns of behavior that will extend your entire business growth platform as well. It's not just in the early stages. That same mindset of experimentation versus guessing will set you up for growth as well. And what we'll also do is completely minimize the, um, the risk to you as, as a founder, but also to your investors as well. And number three, you're going to need that data to show to your investors that you know, you've got a, a great customer um, experience. Investors these days are not just throwing away money. They want to see data. They want to see the results of the experiment. They want to see the customer acquisition rate. They want to see um, things that are demonstrable, not you know, not yeses. That's when they're going to start give you, uh, giving you that money is when you have verified results. So those are the big three takeaways that I'd like to kind of list out as a result of that. You know, before you go here, if you have one more takeaway that you got from the Startup Owner's Manual that entrepreneurs should keep in mind, anyone who's creating a product or service, developing a customer, anything else that, from this book that you think we should be keeping in mind? You know, I think the big one is, um, is being brave, being brave to be wrong. It's actually more important to fail. That is extremely not taught in our educational institutions. Failure, you know, if you come up with an MBA, it's about planning and strategy maps and all this kind of stuff. And, and honestly, failure is what's going to lead you to success. Uh, I always, you know, reference Dyson. 
right? He's had, you know, his story is he had 2,000 failures before he actually got to the right one. And, and we all know that the Dyson vacuum is leaps and bounds beyond anything that we've ever seen, right, in terms of other vacuums. Even, even the longer running generational ones like Hoover vacuums, they just haven't gotten to that level yet. Experimentation and failure should be embraced and not uh, penalized. And in organizations today, we're still seeing failure as being something that is bad. But, and I think this is the reason why, is that we're still looking at big failure versus micro failures. Micro failures through experimentation is awesome. It's science, it's learning. We can use that to build off of. Don't be afraid of it, embrace it. Um, um, don't even consider it as failure, if you will. Consider it as learning along your journey to provide value. Absolutely love that last message there, Joel. Joel Semeniuk, the Chief Innovation Officer from Imagine It. Joel, thanks so much, man, for being on the show. Hey, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how do they do that? The best way is on Twitter, at uh, Joel Semenyuk uh, is the best way. Um, I'm, uh, I, I actively kind of post um, on, you know, very interesting kind of topics on Twitter to kind of try to raise up some discussions. I like to post a lot of uh, what I see in the industry as well. I don't do a lot of blogging these days. So I do a lot of lecturing. Um, but, um, yeah, best place is, is on Twitter. Joel, thank you so much for making time for us today. Really, really valuable insights. I greatly appreciate it. A lot of people, I'm sure, appreciate it as well, too. And uh, we'll have to have you on the show again to uh, share some of your uh, your experiences and your journeys with us as you keep going along. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very honored to be on the show. Right on. Thanks, Joel. Take care, man. Bye-bye.